have your Bibles, if you will open with me, if you have not, to the uh, book of Romans. We are going to be in chapter 9 this morning, and we're going to particularly look at verses 6 through 13. But as I open up the word to you this morning, I want to maybe start this morning by looking at the end of end of Paul's message here in these three chapters. As you heard last week, if you were here, uh, chapters six, 9 through 11 are a unit and they go together and Paul is developing an argument here. And so what I want to do to faithfully divide the word of God is to go to the author's intent or, or what Paul and I think what the Holy Spirit through Paul intends the result to be of hearing and reading this letter. And so let's go to chapter 11 just real quickly. I want you to hear the intent. And I want you to let this sink in. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became His counselor? Or who has first given to God Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things To Him, God, to Him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. This is the culmination and the transition from this section that Paul is writing in this letter to this church at Rome, and he writes these words, how unfathomable are your ways. We can't even fathom the ways of God. How unquestionable are your judgments. Who am I, O God? I have not given you anything that I can be repaid. God, you are the giver of all. To you be the glory. Therefore, our response is, to joyfully lay down our life to service of this great King. This is the implications of Romans 9-11. through That we worship. That we worship God in spirit and in truth. And we give Him the worship He deserves for what He has done and for who He is. And the greatest way that this worship is shown is by through our lives and our actions of our laying ourselves down to worship for this King in glad submission to Him. God is sovereign. He is good. His ways are above ours. His mercy is unbelievable that He would love a sinner like you and like me, that He would send His very Son to die on the cross for me is unfathomable. And He is trustworthy. He is true. His promises are sure. 
And you can base your life on that. And if you were here with us last week, we, 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 we started the theme, that, which I am saying is the theme. I think the, the, that it's clear that the theme of Romans 9-11 through 11 is the trustworthiness of God. The problem, the problem is that the Jews, ethnic Israel, Jewish folks, were rejecting the Messiah. And get this, I don't want us to skip over this lightly. They were rejecting Jesus Christ. The one whom all of their scriptures pointed to. All of the prophecies in the Old Testament are fulfilled in. He was the promised coming one and He came and He died on a cross to ransom His people and they said, no, thank you. Not only that, but they were continuing in their unbelief and from Paul's vantage point as he was going around in his missionary's journeys, he did not see more Jewish people turning to faith. He saw less Jewish people turning to faith. And what he saw was the Gentiles were rushing in. And the Holy Spirit, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gave Paul, gave Paul insight into the depth of God so that he could write to the church of Rome and assure the believers there, assure this mixed crowd of Jews and Gentiles, the Word of God has not failed. And this is a big deal, like we learned last week, because if God fails in His promise to the Israelites, what's to say that He won't fail in His promise to you? So, as we jump into this text, As we jump into this text, we see Paul in verse 6 tell us the thesis of this argument. In verse 6, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. And now when you see this word, word here, it is referring to, we know because of verses previously and verses afterwards, that when he uses this word, word, he's meaning the word being the promises. So it's not as if the promises of God has failed. And and I want you to see the argument that Paul is making. And and the argument Paul is making in the text is pretty clear. So walk with me through this. This this text brings out a lot of emotions in people, but I want you to intellectually understand what the argument is that Paul is laying out here. So Paul is saying that the Word of God has not failed because not all of the biological children, not all Israel... The biological children of Abraham are children of the promise. There's this little word play in 6b, well, the end of chapter 6, let's say it that way. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And so what you have happening is that you have an ethnic or biological Israel. And Paul is saying, not all of those people are children of the promise. That somewhere along the line, what had crept into the thought and the minds of the Jewish people is that being born, being born a Jew was enough to get you into heaven. And what Paul is saying is, no, not all who are born of Abraham or descended from this lineage are the children of promise. 
And he doesn't stop there. He goes in and he brings up Abraham and Sarah here with me. Nor are, all the chil- nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise regarded, are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. Now listen as we... I'm going to turn back to Genesis. And you, you probably have all read this account in Genesis where um, there were these folks uh, speaking uh, to Abraham uh, in Genesis uh, chapter 18. And, and here with me, uh, as the Lord is speaking through these uh, folks in verse 9 through 19. And they said to him, Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, there in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. Listen to this. Behold, Sarah, just in case there was any doubt, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Notice how the author goes through painstaking detail for us to know who is supposed to have the child and who was listening. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure with my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Notice this. Listen to this verse. Is there anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Then the men rose up from there and looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely, listen to this, since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken to him. And brothers and sisters, when it is saying, I will bless Abraham, It is not meaning in this text, I will just give him good things. He is saying, in Abraham, I am bringing the ultimate thing. A blessed man is not a man with stuff. A blessed man is a man who knows the creator of the universe. And so what happened in this text, we know as the story goes forward, Sarah and Abraham don't trust the promise of God, and so they find the Egyptian servant... Hagar, bring her in, and Abraham has another son, the firstborn son, whose name is Ishmael. And so what Paul is saying here is, look, not all biological children of Abraham are children of the promise. Look at Ishmael. That's the implications here. Now, this doesn't answer the question. This doesn't answer the question, right? Because 
What would you say if you were an ethnic Jew and that was all we had? I'm not a descendant of Ishmael. I'm a descendant of Isaac. I'm a descendant of the promise. I'm not of the line of Ishmael. Ishmael was banished. Ishmael's lineage went somewhere else. That's not who I am. Paul, your argument doesn't make any sense. Children of Isaac are rejecting the Messiah. So what you learn, what you learn is that Paul, in bringing this up, in my mind, is bringing up the problem. And he's putting it on a tee, and he's getting ready to hit it. So what we know now, and what we have always known about the Jewish people, because if that, if that solution solved it, then it would be different. But what we know is this. When you read your Old Testament, did any of Isaac's descendants fall away? The answer is yes. When you read your Old Testament, the Old Testament is this history of the Israelites turning away from God and God punishing them and trying to bring them back and doing all this stuff to refine them. And what is it? It starts with an R. What does God say that He always prepares and protects so that His promise will be sure? A what? Remnant. This is the way that God has always worked. Not all Israel is saved, but there has always been a remnant. There has always been a children of the promise. And the reason is, is because God is going to make sure that His promise stands. And so He creates and He prepares this remnant through whom He works to bring forward His promise. There's no remnant. There's no Jesus. point is that there has always been, always been, and it has always been, that not all biological children are children of the promise. And salvation, salvation has always come one way, right? It's good to be reminded of this. How were the people in the Old Testament saved? Through faith. Through faith that God will, and we on this side of the cross are saved through faith that God has. Jesus. It, it hinges on Jesus. And the people, a lot of the people of the Old Testament had no idea of who Jesus was or would be, but that is how they were saved. Through faith that God will. And the people who have faith have always been considered the people of the promise. And so then, and at the time of Paul's writing, the children of the promise are the children who are putting their faith in what Christ, what God has done through Christ. Now, the question should arise if you're following logically with Paul's argument here. Okay, not all who are biological Israel are children of the promise. So how do we know? That's the question, right? That's the logical question. And so Paul gives us another example and this is where it gets tough sledding for some of us. But let's look at the argument. And I think the argument is clear. And there are several things that Paul goes through painstaking details to point out to us in verses 10 through 13. 
And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. Now if you remember, if you've read the story of Isaac and Rebekah, Rebekah was barren as well. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. Now, do you think it is an accident that Paul goes into these details? Twins by one man, our father Isaac. And oh, by the way, oh, by the way, Rebecca was Rebecca was the was was from the right tribe. She wasn't an Egyptian, like Ishmael's mother. And the other thing is that she was the chosen mother. So there's no argument here. You don't get out on ethnicity here. One man and twins. And what I find interesting when we think about twins is that, uh, you know, DNA structures and all those sorts of things, you can't have any more closely related people than twins. Paul's driving a point here. One father, one pregnancy, one conception. They were pure in their, in, in their ethnicity. They were pure in the way that they were conceived. Now let's look at verse 11. For though the twins were not yet born and had done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. So what happens is that God comes and He shows up to Rebekah and God says to Rebekah, the older will serve the younger. And this displaced the common, uh, the, the common idea of birthright in, in which inheritance and things were um, given in the Old Testament. And ultimately, what God was saying to Rebekah is that the younger will be the child of promise. And what Paul is doing and using this argument is he is saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Before you get too going too crazy in your head, you need to understand what I'm telling you here. That when they were in the womb, before they had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose according to election might stand, the older will serve the younger. And brother and sister, one of the things that this, one of the things that this takes out of view here is the idea that God looked down the corridor of time and saw that Jacob would, uh, would, would, would walk in the ways of the Lord and God says, okay, I am basing my choice on this and then comes back and says, hey, Based upon what I see in the future, I'm going to tell you the, the older will serve the younger. Paul goes through painstaking detail here so that we don't think of this text in that way. You see that? In fact, if you go back in Genesis chapter 25 through 27, 28 or so, and you read the account of Jacob, what works of righteousness did Jacob do to get his birthright? Lying, deception. I mean, really, we, we, you know, a couple weeks ago I taught that passage in Sunday school and there were several folks that said, man, you know, I think I'd rather hang out with Esau. 
in those narratives. Esau is just kind of a man of the woods and lusting after his own pleasures. And, and Jacob was conniving and backstabbing. So do you see the point? Do you see the point? The basis of this judgment that the older will serve the younger in verse 11, it's just as clear as day, is so that God's purpose, according to His choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. So what Paul is saying to his readers, what Paul is saying is this. The reason that some of Israel are Israel is because I have called some of Israel to be children of promise and I have prepared and always have prepared a remnant and so therefore don't worry that Jews by and large are rejecting the Messiah. My promise will stand because I will preserve a remnant in Israel. And what's interesting is that Paul, the writer of this letter, can stand and say, I am evidence of this. I was a persecutor of the church. There was nothing, nothing in me that God should look down and say that I want that man in my family because my works and my deeds were evil because I was persecuting Jesus. So the point here, the point here is that God is totally free in His sovereign mercy, in His sovereign mercy to bring who He wants for glory, to glory. This is not like uh, there have been all these emails going around for the seven-year-old uh, baseball all-star tryouts. How do you choose a seven-year-old for baseball all-stars, right? And there's politics involved and all these other things. And what people are saying, the most fair way to do this, if we evaluate these kids fairly and the best kid out there that can help this Signal Mountain seven-year-old all-star team so that they can all be MLB players one day, right? That we're going to choose these players based upon their athleticism and their performance and their ability to follow directions. Praise God. He doesn't choose us based on that. There would be no one here. There would be no preacher. There would be no audience. God doesn't pick the way that we choose all-star players. So, why do some Jews come to faith? Because some of them are children of the promise. Why has God's Word never not failed? Because He never promised that all Israel was going to be saved. And how do we know, here's the next key question, how do we know who the elect are? That, that becomes the big question. And this is a lot easier than what we make it. How do we know who the elect are? How do we know which Jewish person is elect who is chosen before the foundation of the world? It's real easy and it's always been the same way. It's those Jewish people that are accepting Christ as their Messiah. So the minute in Paul's day that he went to a synagogue 
And he reasoned with them, and the eyes of the Jewish person's heart were opened up, and he saw Jesus for who he was, and he became a Christ follower. What Paul is telling us, what God, the Holy Spirit, is telling us through the Scripture is, that's how you know that they're elect. Today, and in Paul's day, it was the same way. It's, it's what they do with Jesus. So their salvation, they're choosing to follow the Lord, they're placing their faith in Christ, they're being saved, is evidence, evidence, not the cause, is evidence that they are elect. And, and, and let me say this, if we go over, and we're going to jump back over here in a minute, but in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. Whoever, huh, notice this, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And whoever has called upon the name of the Lord, whoever has called upon the name of the Lord, this Jewish man or Jewish woman who has called upon the name of the Lord, God says to him, I have chosen you. You are mine. You are mine because you see rightly. Paul doesn't stop here. Um, notice verse 13. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Um, there are a lot of attempts to try to explain this one. Uh, and if we, I think the smart thing to do is to go to the text from which it was quoted in the book of Malachi chapter 1 let me read verses 1 through 5 to you the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi so he's speaking to Israel here as a nation I have loved you says the Lord and notice this but you say how have you loved us was not Esau Jacob's brother declares the Lord Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Through Edom, though Edom says, Edom, uh, the, 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 the name of the city or the, the tribe from, from Esau, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory, and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. And what God is saying there is that the people descended from Esau were attacking and ravaging the Israelites. And what they were saying is, is you know, you may tear us down, God, but we're coming back up against you. And God says to them, you just think you're coming my chosen people, my promises will stand. And there's nothing, Esau, Edomites, that you can do about it. And so what the picture here, the reason I think this verse is here, is what we see is we see a contrast and that we see as God is dealing with these people when He's dealing with the Edomites, they don't repent and they don't come back to the Lord. As He's dealing with Israel, there is a remnant that comes back. And that's evidence of their election. And it's evidence, it's evidence in, the, in the, the lineage of Esau. 
that they're not the child of the promise. Even though, even though, genetically and biologically, they were children of Isaac. So, what Paul is driving home is that some of the Jews are saved, therefore God's word stands. And the great news here is this. And we see this in this text. And I want you to hear, the, this is great news. That God is free in his actions as it relates to us. And his plan is sure. And we don't dictate to God what his plan is. So here's what's not happening. Our choice, our belief, or our rejection does not manipulate God. God is not a cosmic game player. The game of risk or a game of strategy. God doesn't have this massive board laid out in front of Him. And when we do or don't do certain things, it causes Him to react and it causes Him to change. This is not the God of the Bible. We nowhere see this being the God of the Bible. We see the God of the Bible being sovereign. And if this were the way that God acted and reacted, His promises would not be sure. And one of the things, just as a, just as a point of emphasis that we will talk about in weeks or months ahead, is this. Is there any reason conceivable reason that there is a such thing as an Israelite alive today. A tiny little nation in the middle of hostile territories who people over and over and over again has come against. What's, what's, what's any other explanation? God's plan is sure because of His sovereign electing mercy. In Romans 8, I think the whole book of Romans, you know, a, a case study on God's electing mercy. If you read the book of John, you see it all over the place. Uh, the book of Ephesians it, it especially uh, brings this out. Most of the New Testament, I think, teaches and, and preaches this. And, 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 and in all of those instances, what we see is that this electing purpose of God not only applies to Israel, but it applies to us. So that Jews and Gentiles are alike that we're saved by the sovereign electing mercy of God. And our choosing of Him is based on His choosing of us. And, and listen close to me here. I want, I want everybody to understand what I'm saying. No one, no one who loves Jesus and puts their faith in Him, is unelect. You understand that? So it says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved? Absolutely. Because you don't call upon the name of the Lord in your deadness unless something has happened inside of you to awake you to who He is. And God doesn't do that. Outside of His beloved. Also, there's no one who hates Jesus who's going to be drugged into heaven. That's so unbiblical. There's no one who God says, no, 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 I chose you. I know you're not choosing me, but I chose you. Come here, you little rascal. We're... 
doesn't happen that way. The key is, is that God appoints a time, and we'll talk more about this over the next couple of weeks, but the God appoints a time and He opens our eyes to who Jesus is. And when we, anybody who truly sees who Jesus is as the Son of God, there is no result other than wholehearted acceptance of Him because we see the beauty of Christ. And that's the power of the Gospel. Now, I, wanna, I, wanna, I was going to joke and say, okay, let's just go home. But I do need to cover some things here because I want to I be sure you understand what the text is saying. And if you, I know we all wrestle with this. I wrestled with this for a long time um, earlier in my life. And, and, and one of the things I want to ask you is the two questions that always come up is the first of all is, is okay, this is unfair. And the second one is, is that are you saying that we're Robots, thank you, whoever said that. And what I want to say is, is look in the text, and Paul asked the same questions. And what I want to say is, is that if Paul didn't mean what he says that he means, would he have asked those same questions? Would he have anticipated those same objections? So if you look in verse 14, uh, what we'll see next week, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. That's unfair. And then Paul explains why it's not. And then verse 19, there were no robots in this time, right? But if there were, I think Paul would have said, you will say to me, are we robots? But Paul says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And here's what I want to say to you. And one of the reasons why I opened where Paul wants us to end. Paul is very okay with the mystery of God's sovereignty and his election, and human responsibility. Paul's very okay with saying, I don't understand the mind of God, but I'm standing on truth. And brother and sister, we need to be careful in our own life. Do we believe that God's ways are above our ways? If we do, do we believe that God's ways may be unknowable to us? Are there things about God that we don't understand? Does anyone truly understand gravity? Are you thankful that gravity exists? Okay. That's a lot of the way that I view this doctrine. Do we fully understand the doctrine of election and human responsibility? No. Are we thankful it exists? Yes. Because it's here we find our security. It's here we stand and we revel in the mercy of God and, we, and it humbles us to the core. Get this. Get this. I, 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 I love this. In verse 9, 16, and then I want to... Look at 9.16. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills, who wills, or the man who runs, that's an action, but on God who has mercy. Then notice what Paul says in chapter 10. And remember, Paul didn't write chapters, he just wrote. And if this is a divinely inspired book, listen to what Paul writes in chapter 10, and I believe this with everything that's in me. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you might? No. You will be saved. For the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, 
With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. And, and then notice this, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord over all, abounding in riches for all who do what? For all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then notice in 14. This is why I do what I do. How will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they're sent? Just as being written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of good things. Brothers and sisters. There is no such thing as a frozen chosen. There's no such thing. The frozen are not chosen. God, in His mercy, in ways that are unfathomable to us and in ways that we don't understand before the foundation of the earth, looks down and says, Lewis is mine. And then there's a day ordained by God which opened my eyes to the gospel and I saw Jesus and I embraced Him for who He was and it had nothing to do with me. It had nothing to do with my willing. It had nothing to do with my running. But it had everything to do with God. And, and it's not just here. Steve told me I didn't have to worry about time ever. That's true. John chapter 6. Notice as Jesus is talking to the Jews in the synagogue. These things he said in the synagogue, he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, in John chapter 6, verse 59 through 65, if you want to write it down. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Notice this. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were and who did not believe and who it was that would betray Him. And He was saying, for this reason I've said to you that no one can come to Me. No one can come to Me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. When Jesus was talking to Peter, and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, thou art the Christ. Peter says, good job, Peter. You have reasoned well. Now, what's his response to Peter? Flesh and blood didn't, re didn't reveal this to you. Now, I think if you would have asked Peter at the moment, I think Peter would have, I don't, I don't think Peter was aware of that. <laughs> I think it just happened to him. And it just was in him. And he said, you are the Christ. That's what happens to us. <laughs> and so what we might say here then is, all right, Lewis, look, this sort of stuff causes division. Is it really important? Is it really important? And I think it is vital. And again, just because we may not understand it doesn't mean uh, that we don't rest in the implications of it. And I just want to list a couple of implications. 
first and foremost, the implication of God's electing is that God's word is true. Now let me address one other small caveat. I have made an assumption, and this was in my notes earlier, and I skipped over it on accident. <laughs> but when one of the one of the objections to this passage is that some will say, "Well, well, Lewis, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute." When God is talking about electing here, He's talking about electing the nation of Israel. He's not talking about individuals. And I think there are three things that make that a poor argument. Number one. Nations consist of what? People. Individuals. Number two. It is clear from the reading of this text that Paul is talking about a remnant from amongst the nation of Israel. Right? That is clear as day. And what is a remnant made up of? People. So there are some people and there are other people. The third thing is, is that if you just go home and read Romans 9, what you will see, uh, not only does he talk about individual people, you know, Jacob and Esau, people would say, well, that's representative. And then he says, for he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom. These, these whom, it's in the singular. It doesn't depend on the man, singular, who wills, or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And then he talks about Pharaoh. And then over and over again, what we get in verse 20, on the contrary, who are you, O man, to answer to God? That Paul, in his inspiration, it, it's singular. It, it's, it's very clear through the reading of the text, I think. And I think it's a weak argument to say he's talking about nations. And even if it was, it wouldn't matter anyway, because it's a remnant within a nation. And so what we see, what we see here, the implications to us, corporately as believers... And individually, is that God's word is true because he, because he has been true to his promise to Abraham. He has never wavered in his promise to Abraham that he would bless him and make him a father of many nations. No matter what it looks like around us, and I so appreciated Preston's song this morning because it just went right here. No matter what was going on around us, God is there with us and we can rest assured in his promises. Thank you for that, brother. I mean, it's just touched my heart. Notice in chapter 8, again, another implication of this in chapter 8. I'm going to highlight a word here in a minute. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? That's a promise. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him for us all. How will he not also freely give us all things? And then notice this. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is it who condemns? Jesus Christ died. Yes, rather, who was raised and is at the right hand of God. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing will. As glorious as this is, another glorious truth that we have here by neglecting or sliding over or not thinking deeply about this doctrine that Paul brings out here is that the glory of God is at stake. From the very beginning of time, God in His character says, I am the Lord your God. I give my glory to who? No one. 
And we live in such a man-centered, me-centered society that with all of our being, I think we're constantly trying to usurp God's glory and get it to ourselves. And, and this is suicide. You were made to glorify God and only in that will you be happy and joyful and peaceful no matter what goes on around you. And how, how does this doctrine also change your worship? If you believe this doctrine, you don't sit and sing quietly. Some of you sing quietly with all the fervor in you. Amen to that. But when we sing songs that talk about my sinfulness, but God's gracious love towards me, His sovereign election towards me, I, that worship, God, I, I don't understand it, but I'm so thankful to you. And not only that, but the humility. The humility. And all of this combined together produces a humility in us when we recognize who God is and how we are saved. It provides a humility in us. It puts us in our rightful place so that we can be pure worshipers of God and we can be confident in laying down our life for this God because His promises will stand. They're not on shaky ground. And I want to end with this. Because I believe it. There may be one or some among you this morning who have come in here and you have never put your faith and your trust in Jesus. And it could be that some way through the mentionings, the, the, the brief mentionings of the gospel message that Jesus died on the cross for our sins to be our substitute, to take on our sins. It could be that even this morning, your eyes were opened in the middle of this sermon on election, one of the hardest things of the gospel, and God could have brought you and opened you this morning. And I want to pray, and I'm going to pray here as we close, that if that is you, will you please come talk to me or Gary, and we would love, we would love to put our arms around you and celebrate your coming to Jesus. Let's pray. God, I pray. I proclaim as your word tells the preacher to proclaim. To the people hearing my voice, be saved. Be saved. God, if there is one here among us who has not put their faith in you, God, I pray that the eyes of their heart would be opened and that today would be the day of their regeneration. God, I pray, I pray, Lord, with all that's in me, that you would open the eyes of, of, of the blind here and that they would see your son Jesus for who he really is, the Savior of the world. God, we pray for this in confidence because of who you are and because of what you've done. You have sent your son to secure the promises. And so all the promises are all the promises that you've given us are yes and amen because of your son Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.